Welcome to Rights Conversations, a policy and legal advocacy center podcast series focused on the subject of human rights. This is episode four of Tax Rights Conversations, and I am Edima Opalunua, your host. We have a special guest joining us on this episode, and he is the publisher, Cross River Watch. I'm pretty sure when I say the name, you would be very familiar with his name. <laughs> He is Abba Jalingo. It's a pleasure having you on this episode, sir. Such a pleasure to be here. Namaste. So we're going to be talking about his experience. Yes, it's all about him. His experiences on human rights violations. Or, okay, let's say a considerable number of human rights violations he has suffered, especially the ones that we have read about. We felt it was a good opportunity for us to hear directly from you and not what we just read in the papers. So let's start. Can you just tell us briefly what you consider to be right to freedom of expression? What does it really entail? Well, um, the ability to talk and say things the way you want to say them without any form of inhibition, that's for me the um, you know, freedom of expression. Uh, even for those who fight for rights, some people generally feel that um, your right to speak is only permissible to the extent that you say nice things alone. But we have seen very recently, as recently as early this year, two judges in uh, a court in the UK said that um, they gave a judgment that the right to free speech includes insulting the other person. That if your right to free speech is only to say nice things, then you don't have a right at all. Yeah, I'm not about to insult anybody, but I believe very strongly that the right to free speech includes you harassing and saying things that other people do not like to hear. And once those lines are breached, they are permissible and acceptable mechanisms of uh, addressing them, and one of them is the law court. But uh, for no reason should anybody be stopped from speaking, whether what the person wants to say sounds nice or not. All right, so what factors do you think give rise to the violation of the rights of journalists and media organizations in Nigeria because over time we have heard, we have seen and we've also gotten reports of different human rights violations with regards to this. A lot of them actually go unreported. That's the irony of it. Even when you expect it to really be reported based on these are media organizations. But the reverse is the case. When the major reason um, why journalists get arrested is um, the politicians in Nigeria have thrived in whatever they do under opacity. The conditions have been very opaque. They don't want people to talk. I don't know whether that is cultural, but I don't think it's cultural because Africa has never been a secretive society or community. We have always been. The cultural spirit of Africa is Ubuntu and long before the British brought their system, we always gathered in open playgrounds to discuss our communal issues. But uh, political leaders in Africa generally don't like to be monitored. They don't like people noticing what they are doing. And uh, the journalist that has been empowered, both by law and by society, to hold them accountable is usually the first victim because we like to dog after their heels. We like to we like to spit on their polished oak tables. We, we like to say those things that they don't want the public to hear. And usually when we say that, they come after us. We haven't grown to that point where they can tolerate our our nosing around. I think basically that is the first reason why they come after us. 
and um, yeah, well, there are peripheral reasons, but basically it is just because they don't want us to talk. They just really wish that we could not, uh, we can't go ahead to always say those things that we say. So you do believe that it's possible that the media in present day is mm. a bit stifled? Not a bit. The media in Nigeria generally is very, very stifled. As a matter of fact, the media in Nigeria under the military was more vibrant than what we have today. It appears that the journalists in Nigeria today is laid back. The journalists in Nigeria has been sucked into the system. You understand? This uh, very, very terrible brown envelope syndrome. And then, of course, almost every journalist today has a political leaning. You know, we all have, in, under the guise of objectivity, everybody has one form of inclination or the other that they are pursuing. And most of what the public consume today in the name of journalism is basically public relations uh, stunts for most of the people that are pulling the levers of power. Uh, I was here under the military government. I was here in Nigeria. Uh, I was still a young school liver, but I know how Tempo, Tell Magazine, uh, and several others, and the individuals who risked their lives when we were only still publishing with stencils. We didn't even have this modern publishing equipment. And I know the risks that people had to take. Some were even running those stencils in the bush and then come to drop them by the streets for whoever passes by to pick them up. And uh, I thought that, if, I think frankly, that the media was more vibrant than now. Even with the social media, people are pandering to the interest of different politicians and there are very few people who are still running after the interest of the general public. So I, I would say, that is not just a bit. The media in Nigeria is being stifled every other day. And uh, thinking about the fact also that more than 90% of the media organizations in Nigeria are either being owned or funded by politicians. It is difficult to have uh, a media that will be completely liberated in that kind of environment until media organizations themselves are able to look inwards and find a way to generate not just the manpower capacity, but also financial capacity to be able to run the newsrooms without the intervention of the politicians then we can then say it's Uhuru. But for now, we still have our monocles here and there. Okay, so yeah. let's get to the crux of the matter. Yeah. Um, have you suffered any rights abuse in the course of your work as a journalist? <laughs> I don't know any week that passes that I, I don't suffer some form of injustice. And I'm not talking just about arrest. You see people coming to tell you that uh, what is wrong with yourself, you talk as if you are a saint, not only you get mouth, you know, those kind. I consider all of those uh, behaviors to as affront on our right to speak. I've been arrested and locked up more than 50 times in the police station, been through four prisons, and uh, all of this, I've never been convicted. Most of the cases were thrown out, and it was all because of my work, nothing else. And, uh, I, I, but I stand here stronger than the first time I went to prison, every time I go to jail and come out, I become stronger. So, but I, every week, every month, every year, none of them passes by that I don't face some form of um, humiliation or the other. Yes, indeed, there was uh, one of the cases with the Cross River State Government, mm -hmm. and uh, we read these, like I said, but what really prompted the government, that's the Cross River State Government, to order your arrest? Well, till today, the governor of the state uh, still denies that he's the one that ordered my arrest, even though he was the one. Because when the matters got to court, because it's a police, we only have one police in Nigeria. 
the suit in court said it was Federal Republic of Nigeria versus Agbajalingo. So the governor was hiding under that nomenclature to say that he's not the one that arrested me. But actually, my state governor, Governor Benayade, is the person that ordered my arrest. I that was the first one in 2019. I won't forget August 22nd. Detectives from IRT, which is now defunct, IGP. Uh, in, uh, intelligence response team that was headed by the now imprisoned Abakiari. They came to my house in Lagos and um, forcefully broke into the house. They just appointed My wife was there, they dragged me out of the house, took me to their facility in the Kaja and locked me up there for a night. And the following day, I was moved to Calabar in the trunk of a Toyota Highlander. I spent 26 hours in the trunk of the car. Uh, up to you. I was brought out of the... I defecated on my body twice. I was chained. I was handcuffed. Both my legs and my hands were handcuffed and thrown in the trunk. When I got to you, I think they ran out of foil in their car and they wanted to refer. So, some, one of them said they should allow me clean up. Because obviously I was thinking, so they said to allow me to clean up, I did that. Then from Uyo to Calabar, I was kept in the back seat of the car. So we got to Calabar, the government officials that ordered my arrest were transcorporated. So like uh, Pontius Pilate, they took me before them. And after they cranked their glasses, I was taken to a controlled facility at the cultural center, the anti-cultism and kidnapping unit of the police. That's where I was down. I was changed to a deep freezer in that place for an, another 34 days before I was taken to, before a judge, four count charges of uh, terrorism, treasonable felony, attempt to overthrow Buhari and my state governor and, and uh, courtism. Later on, the charges were amended and they added cyber, cyber uh, crime or cyber whatever to the crime, to the number of charges. I was in jail for six months, then I was granted bail, and the trial continued for three months. It's been thrown out already now by the court. I was discharged and acquitted for lack of evidence against me in court. But that was um, 2019, August. But uh, it, it seems like they're in love with August. You know, this year again, August 2022, <laughs> the governor's younger brother, his name is Franco Ayade. We did an expose on Crossover Watch when we found out that the wife of the governor's younger brother, his name is um, Alami Franco Ayade, he finished from law school and hired somebody to write the law school exams for her. And that fellow is a lecturer in Unica. He was arrested at the law school during the exams, charged to the Buhari area court here in Abuja. And when we found out he's a cross Siberian, uh, my interest immediately was uh, ignited and I was trying to find out why will you arrest somebody who came to write exams for somebody without arresting the person that procured the services of that person. So we started our own investigation and found out he was the wife of the younger brother of our state governor. And the younger brother of my state governor is a very powerful person in our state. As a matter of fact, the governor calls him the co-governor. Even in public, when he goes for state functions, he addresses him as a co-governor. Cool 
uh, most majority of people in Crossover will agree with me that people are even more afraid of him than the governor himself because of the way and manner he wields power. He moves around with police convoys even though he doesn't hold any position in government. So people fear him. So when we wrote the story that the wife procured somebody to write the law school exams for him, he felt that was an affront on him and his integrity if he has any. Uh, he was very relieved, obviously. And he still went and sent another team of policemen, this time around from Abuja, who still came to that same house, held my wife and my little daughter hostage downstairs. Uh, they wanted me out, but my wife wouldn't let them into the compound because they didn't have a search warrant. But they came with a, magistrate, a warrant from a magistrate to arrest me. So when I made calls to find out that there was indeed an order to arrest me, I came down and followed them again. They took me to there's a nearby police station to my house, but the DPO declined keeping me because he said he didn't want to get involved with this again. They should take me to Ikeja. Of course, I go to Ikeja. I was detained there, and then the following morning again, I was moved to the police headquarters here in Abuja. He got here, and uh, one thing led to another. This they threw me at the Abatua. Uh, police station, a very horrible place. They kept me there in the middle of the night. They came and the pressure outside was quite much for them because I think people were like, How about what's, what's, what's the matter again? and all of that. So they were suffocated. They called me that night and asked me to go home and come back on Monday. So they invited the complainant. And uh, he, she couldn't make it to the police station because she said she was traumatized and hospitalized. I don't know. Me that was arrested was not traumatized, but the person that is accusing me, who locked me up, said she was traumatized. But that was the latest adventure. But uh, beyond then, beyond those ones, we have had um, cases of inversion of our office in Calabari, crossover watch office. The governor sends people periodically to come invade the office. They destroy everything in the office. My editors, Particularly the managing editor and the news editor, Jonathan Ubal and Jeremiah Chibum, have also been arrested several times and put on trial several times for just doing their work. And there are occasions when we will be forced to lock down our office for months if we know that the surveillance and the life of the staff in the office is threatened. So periodically they disrupt what we are doing. I have actually lost count <laughs> for the times that they come to, to harass us. But, um, I've also tried the much I can to put a book together so that in case I forget, I can always go back to the book. So I've been able to write my prison memoirs. I call it the pen in jail to always remind me and history of uh, some of those events. There's no way we can capture all of it. To a large extent, I've been able to keep track and, and record some of the events as it were. And so far, would you say you have any regrets? Would you still wake up tomorrow and say, oh, I would want to be a journalist over and over again? If I stop doing what I'm doing, like maybe my wife will not love me again. Even me myself, I don't know if I were not a journalist, I possibly would be selling a car. Because that's what I did for my mother for 11 years. And I love to sell a car. I prepared myself. So if I did not do journalism, I would own a shop where I would sell a car, maybe like an outlet. And I would do it so good that everybody will want to eat my car. That's the only other option that I would have had. But I love journalism because I see it not as a means to one. I don't see it as something that puts food on my table, no. I do a couple of other things to put food on my table. My, my brand of journalism in Nigeria doesn't, doesn't pay. <laughs> 
I distribute in you know, some vehicles. I do a couple of other things to make sure that I pay my bills. For what we do, nobody is ready to associate with you. I will be a journalist a million times because journalism for me is a tool to change society and I've been able to use it effectively in holding people of power accountable within my own sphere of influence. And I will always, always, always want to be one. I don't know of any other thing I would want to do. There are no regrets. Like I said earlier on, every time I went to jail, I came out stronger than the last time I went. Okay. So, have you pursued any fundamental human rights action against the government? If so, what was your experience? Well, we, we have pursued a couple of them, but the latest one was after the incarceration in Calabar, the federal government was taken to the ECOWAS court by Serap on my behalf. And um, the ECOWAS court gave a judgment that I should be paid 30 million for the violation of my right. It's over a year now. The judgment was ignored by the government. <laughs> That's the current state of the matter. For me, it's not even the money, even though I intend to have been encouraged, as it were, to make sure that I fight to get the money. It's uh, actually what I deserve for what I went through. But what is more important, the lesson from that court judgment for me is to tell government that it is possible to drag you somewhere where decisions can be given indicating that I did not do anything. Next time when you want to do that to the next person, uh, the people should also be confident that there are places where you can drag government to, to get some form of justice, uh, no matter whether it is tangible or intangible. So that is the lesson. I can quote it for the records that um, those who locked me up in prison were embarrassed after that um, judgment. So I, I think, I also wanted to go to court after the judgment in Calabar, after the high court threw out the matter. I wanted to sue the governor for uh, all the stress that I was put through. A lot of things went wrong. But I'm a bit curious. Mm. Um, yes, you understand money was actually paid. It's not been paid yet. Yeah. But has any form of, say, an apology been issued by the state government? That's the cost of the state government? No. They, they are even preparing to arrest me again as I'm talking. I go into Calabar now like a fugitive. <laughs> I can't go to Calabar and feel like a free citizen. That's why I run away and I stay in Lagos. So I go into Calabar like a fugitive. I live like a fugitive. They even contacted non-state actors to kidnap me. So they are not giving up on on their determination to deal with me. I just haven't come within their firing line. I've not come within their firing line. That is why they are still they are watching me from a distance. And I'm also counting days for them. I know that today. They have about 189 days to to leave the saddle. Maybe the situation will become more convenient for me to operate. But for now, it is very dicey and it is very risky for me in this state. And just as we begin to wrap up, are there any other human rights violations that are widespread in Nigeria that you have come across in the course of your work and you would like to share? <laughs> there are so many. Every time you get on the street in Nigeria, from the front of your house, you begin to see violation of rights. So I don't even know how many of them we are going to count from. Everybody, everybody, the government in Nigeria has given a uniform or an ID card. It's just waiting for the next vulnerable citizen to violate their rights and take them for granted. 
whether it's a policeman, whether it's a civil servant in the office, whether it is um, um, anybody, anybody at all that government has given an ID card, as they step out of their house in the morning to go and meet people that they are supposed to offer services to, <clears throat> when you come before them, they violate you either verbally or physically or with their bios. Go to the hospitals, doctors are taking advantage of women who don't know their rights. Recently, I had to deal with an issue where a woman said she went to a hospital, a doctor threw her on the bed and brought in 19 students without her consent. Yes, even if you're teaching hospital and you want to use me as to lecture your students, courtesy demands that I should be informed. It's also my choice to say yes or no. And then when she said, you can't do this to me, the doctor almost slapped her and pushed her out of the world without wearing her clothes. You see those kind of things every other day. Not just the government, but even private people. Everybody that feels is stronger than you, one step ahead of you. They're always looking for how to take advantage of the next person. So generally, Nigeria is a crime scene. Nigeria is a crime scene. And uh, <laughs> we, 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 we need to treat Nigeria like a crime, a crime scene. People need to get serious about not just fighting for rights, but also sensitizing the general public to understand what their rights really means. Majority of Nigerians have not lived or seen democracy in action. Don't know how democracy works. So even asking a politician or a public office holder to come and do what they are supposed to do, when they do it, they think they are doing you a favor because our people have not experienced democracy. So they don't, know, they don't even know what to ask for. So when, when, even when you're asking for what is legitimate, the politicians will think they are doing you a favor. So um, I have told myself that as a journalist, rather than <clears throat> wait to fight for rights when they are abridged, I will also pay a lot of attention to seeing how we can continue to sensitize our people to know their rights so that they can prevent others from breaking them. But on the general note, Nigeria is a crime scene. It's a crime scene, and these crimes are perpetrated not just by the government people, but also by ordinary people who feel they are stronger than uh, the next person to them. So finally, what do you consider the lessons from all your experiences? And what advice would you give to journalists in the, who are still practicing in the media space and probably facing one human rights violation or the other? Uh, if you want to do journalism in Nigeria today now, don't, uh, don't do it as a job that will earn you a living. Be determined to use it as a tool to change society. As a journalist, I, I think we have gone past uh, putting a camera in front of you, rec recording interviews to go and interpret in the newsroom. I have also gone past advocacy journalism. I feel that we should be doing accountability journalism. If you want to do journalism, you must be determined to be to be brutalized, you must be determined to be to be harassed by the people in power in Nigeria today. Don't, uh, don't go into journalism because you need a regular job that will give you food. Unless you want to go and do PR, because like I said earlier on, the public consumes today as journalism. is public relations that people are doing for powerful people from the newsrooms. But if you really want to go into digging up things that have the capacity and the potential to change society as a journalist, then you must be prepared to be harassed. You must be prepared to have a second home, which most probably will be somewhere behind bars. 
Uh -huh. And one thing with injustice also is that, uh, ironically, when they see your determination to always sleep in those places because of the work you do, it gets to a point they, they become tired of you. <laughs> they give you your pride of place. They respect you. They become afraid of your pain. But for them, for you to get to that point, you must be ready to do one, do two, do three, do four, do five, until everybody talking after you will know that, oh, this person has made up his or her mind to do this. Uh, it is that kind of stuff that will be able to distinguish any aspiring journalist from the rest, because there are so many people out there running around with midgets and virus, calling themselves journalists that are not really doing the work. But if you really want to go in there and distinguish yourself, be prepared for the harassment, be prepared to have a second home that may not be very convenient, and then be prepared to go a long way to establish yourself as an authority that can be trusted. All right, and just as we wrap up, do you have final words, what you would like to add? Well, I'm fine, just to thank Plak and particularly my comrade, <laughs> comrade Clement Wonko, he's, uh, they taught us how to do what I'm doing now. I remember when I was running after them, when he was locked up in DMI and the colleagues, I was back around some Kuti secretary then. Oh, we, we will only be tear gas and, and beaten and we will run away, but they were older, so they will grab them and then take them to lock them up. And for him to stand till now and still uh, pushing on, uh, not very many people have made of the stuff that he has made. So I would continue to say that there are the few examples that are still standing and giving us the hope and the courage to keep moving on. And it is my hope that uh, God will give them strength to continue to chart that course for us. Ultimately. Thank you, Abba Jalingo, for sharing your experiences with us. Oh, well, yes, we do hope that we're going to get those uh, Akara. Yes. One of these <laughs> I days. still do that every Saturday. Ah, so <laughs> no point, so I still write every Saturday. I have written a book, The Akara Boy by Abba oh, Jalingo. You have a book, The Akara Boy? Yes, by okay. Abba Jalingo. 11 years of uh, my selling Akara. So I got it there, and uh, it's, it's, it's good. That was my mother's business, and I really think of taking it to the next level. Even with my journalism. Oh, it was a pleasure having you. Thank you. God bless you. God bless Nigeria. This is Black's Rights Conversations. Thanks for joining us. Subscribe and stay up to date with upcoming episodes. Ensure to follow Black across our social media platforms at Black NG.